This is going to be a little bit different this morning than the previous two uh, messages regarding faith. Um, because I'm a guy who believes that if you don't understand something, um, you either just kind of like, okay, that's not something I want to get involved in, or you figure it out. Yeah, This is a Pentecostal church, and audible amens are acceptable. I don't pull them. I don't ask you to amen or anything, but if you want to amen, you're not going to disturb me. Okay? So... I, I just needed to figure it out. I just needed to figure it out. So let's turn this morning to Matthew chapter 6 for our text verses. There are several. Everybody knows this passage of Scripture. Everybody knows this passage of Scripture. Folk that aren't even, not, are not even regular church attenders know this passage of Scripture. We're going to start in the fifth verse, and we're going to read through verse 13. If you're there, let's begin. Jesus was speaking here. We're, like I said, in the sixth verse or the sixth chapter of the book of Matthew. This is smack in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is his first recorded sermon in the Gospels. We know that he was preaching messages beforehand because of Matthew chapter 5 and all that it entails. So with that said, this is his first recorded uh, message to his church. And he stops along the way and he wants to talk about prayer. Now, prayer and faith go hand in hand. So let's hear what Jesus had to say. And let's kind of look at this, shall we? Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, And when you pray, and when you pray, okay? So right there, you know he did not put a schedule on it. Now, I know the Bible says elsewhere, pray without ceasing. I get that. I understand that. But here when Jesus is actually giving an up-close, in-person tutorial on the how-tos to praying, he did not put a schedule on it. He said, but when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. What did we just learn? We just learned that hypocrites pray. So if you ever have a problem with a hypocrite, know that that hypocrite is praying. And the fascinating thing that comes right after this statement is this. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? To be seen by others. And then he says this, Truly I tell you, they've received their reward in full. So the reality is here about one of the first things you need to recognize about prayer is prayer is supposed to be seen. The question is, is who's the audience? Who is your chosen audience? Do you pray to be seen and everybody goes, ooh, that person's really spiritual. Well, you just got rewarded. That's it. That's all you got. Because you got seen. You've been seen. However, however, there's something else we need to know. Jesus moves on right here and says, but when you pray, okay, when you pray, 
go into your room. Then he tells you, shut the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. So prayer is going to be viewed. The question is, is what audience have you chosen to see your prayers? To see you when you pray? Close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So... Here's the next decision you have to make. One, the first decision is, is who do you want to see? Who do you want seeing you pray? I'll get that out right. Who do you want seeing you pray? Because if I am up here and I'm going to pray so that you guys see me, your viewing of me praying is my reward. My people. But if I want God's reward in my life, you're not going to see this, right? Now, praying for James, that's different. That's corporate prayer. We're all getting together to intercede. I'm talking about when I go to meet with him. What was Jesus' habit? He'd go out and he'd minister and he'd deplete the resources that he had in himself. And what would he do? The Bible tells us he would go away into private places, oftentimes early in the morning, likely where others are sleeping, and he doesn't run the risk of anybody seeing him, he meets up with God before his day begins so that he's fueled back up for the day at hand. So maybe what we're talking about here is when we go to our closet, when we go to our room, we shut the door behind us so no one's viewing this, and we seek God. Maybe this reward... Because God is going to see you, although He is unseen, you are. He views you. And then instead of you guys going, oh, Michael's so spiritual. Instead of that being my reward, what God does is He refuels us for the day at hand. Now, He's not going to give you a Cadillac because you pray. Capiche? That's not the kind of reward. We've got to get out of that mindset. We've got to get out of the mindset that, man, I really need a four-wheeler, so if I pray in secret, God's going to give me a new four-wheeler. Man, I need that. No, you just need to get a second job and go earn the money and get a four-wheeler. But what God is going to reward you with is probably the same stuff that he rewarded Jesus with when he went in solitude and sought the face of God. And that's refuel him because we have to turn around and leave that closet. We have to open that door, go out into public, and touch lives. I think that's probably one of our problems, our weakness issues, Ken's. And isn't it good to see Ken's on the platform? I'm sorry, I was just ecstatic to see her today. I think our mindset is that when we talk about reward and blessing, we think it's all out of our wallets and our purses or some facsimile thereof. When in reality, the Bible makes it pretty clear that our lives are to be expenditures for God's kingdom. And so when we go in to pray, expect God to juice you up. 
so that you can turn around and leave fully expecting to do it again tomorrow. Yes? I did not plan on any of that in my message. But it's good stuff. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not... I love this. Keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. But and here's the great disclaimer. Okay, Do not be like them. For because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In other words, one... God already knows what it is. Remember Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these other things are going to be added to you. And prior to that, Jesus says, Don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink and clothe yourself with. He already knows about that. So here He says, Don't babble. Stop babbling. God knows what you need. He is your creator. Kind of clues you in on the reality. He knows what we need. Number two, he's not forgetful, nor is he senile. And God's not hard of hearing. If he already knows what you need, and the Bible bears that out, then why are we babbling? He already knows, so this is the advice Jesus is giving you. If you're going to go before Him, say what you've got to say and sit down. Prayer isn't because God needs to hear from us. Prayer is because it's an exercise of our faith. Yes? Yeah, it is. So when he says, when you do this, don't be like pagans. They think their chants and their dances and all this. They think they're going to get heard just because they're doing that. They're not going to know. First of all, pagans worship a God that's made out of stone, wood, or something else that doesn't exist in the first place. We are actually speaking to a living entity who hears but knows in advance what we have need of. So don't keep babbling. Say, Lord, you know my circumstances. I'm asking you to to, to, to do this. I love you. Thank you. Amen. It'll save a lot of time. It'll save a lot of your time. And although God doesn't fall asleep on the throne, He doesn't. I can imagine Him sitting there going, As we just babble, and then just kind of like one of the angels goes, oh, props him back up. He just slapped, fell asleep. I know he doesn't do that, but that's how I see things. So let's move on. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then Jesus, this is the piece de resistance right here. Last sentence of this particular discussion before he goes into the example. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive 
or have also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, end quote. That is the model. And sometimes I think we take that model and we make it a little complicated, but that's Jesus. This then is how we should pray. Now I'm going to go into something here. Why have I elected over these past three weeks to preach and teach on faith this way. I'm going to give you a little something. This is a little backstory. I spent literally decades thinking that I was operating in faith simply by going to church and accepting what others had told me, what they had preached to me, and had taught me about what I was supposed to be as a Christian. Just Buying it, believing it, and then trying subsequently to emulate them, all the while not understanding it all. Just didn't get it. Didn't understand it. What's worse is that in many cases, in my case, in many cases, I wasn't even seeing what they said was supposed to come to pass in my life. And I was utterly confused by that. I'm doing everything that I know to do because that's what they were preaching and teaching and I'm trying to do what they're saying and it's not happening and I'm totally confused and I don't understand any of it. I floundered through my Christianity for a very long time and I had absolutely nobody to disciple me for decades. Not one single person and I'm not going to get into the whole discipleship discussion because that's for a different day, but I think that the church needs to do better on that, on discipleship. And I'm not talking about CWC specifically. I'm talking about the church at large. Well, with all of that going on, my break, my break in the clouds didn't come until I actually went off to college and I attended Messenger College. It was up in Joplin, Missouri at the time. It's not anymore, obviously. It's up in the Metroplex. Now, when I say that my big break of understanding came when I attended Messenger College, I want you to understand something. Um, MC, Messenger College, did not disciple me into the truths that I now function, preach, and teach in. They didn't. They did not do that. But what they did do was probably just about as important, if not more important, is that, this. They kicked a door open for me to a world and a reality that I did not even so much as know existed. That's what Messenger College did. They opened a door to a life and a living so broad and so vast that I had no idea that I had no idea that it even existed. That there was an entire world out there to discover that I had no idea living up in Traverse City, Michigan, existed. So, with all of that backstory firmly ensconced in your mind, why do I do this this way? Why do I preach and teach on faith this way? Because it is absolutely imperative, brothers and sisters, that we understand what faith actually is. Instead of wondering what it is, accepting that we really don't know what it is, and hoping against all odds 
that we get it right or hoping that we've got enough of whatever faith is to get us through whatever it is we're experiencing. If we don't really understand what faith is, if we really don't grasp what it is at its core, then when times get really tough, whatever that means for you, whatever tough times are for you, we'll find ourselves praying for God to deliver us, for God to provide for us, for God to heal us, etc., etc. And if we thought, and if what, uh, and if what we thought was faith isn't, and what we sought God for doesn't manifest because it wasn't faith at all, then we'll be left with questions. Questions like, why didn't God do this? Why didn't God do that? Why didn't God show up? While the whole time we weren't having actual faith in the first place because what we thought was faith wasn't. We need to grab what, grasp what faith really is. Because if all faith is to us is just hoping that what we wanted, hoping that what we need will manifest, fingers crossed and teeth gritted, then what happens when it doesn't? If we can understand what faith really is, belief in God, just God, belief that He is, belief that He exists, all faith is tied to that, not the hopes for other stuff. If, if we can get grasp what faith really is, then if and when... What we want or need doesn't manifest. It doesn't come to pass. No matter how dire, no matter how crucial, no matter how critical, we will still have Him. To trust in. We will still have Him to believe in. If we're asking for deliverance, if we're asking for provision, for healing, and those things do not come to pass, here's the question. Are we crushed by that? Did we lose a loved one that we've been praying for and they, they pass away? Are we crushed by that? Despite the fact that we called on God in what we think is faith, and that doesn't happen, and they pass away. Are we crushed by that? Is our belief in God then ground into powder, believing that God, well, He didn't answer that, so maybe He just doesn't exist? Or, at the very least, questioning His existence, 
and our belief in Him? Or do we rejoice knowing that despite it all, no matter what we needed, and no matter whether it manifested or not, do we rejoice anyway? Despite it all, because He still is. If you're confused by this line of thought, just reread the second half of Hebrews 11. People were starved. People lived in holes in the ground and in caves, barely clothed at all. No food. Some of them were persecuted and tortured and murdered, etc. Do those people, you don't just willingly give up your life and your living unless you know He is. Do you think any of those people didn't cry out to God? Do you think that the Roman Colosseum didn't hear sometimes more prayers than the temple itself when Christians were the focus of the Roman gladiator games where they were slaughtered by the thousands by both men and beasts alike? Those Colosseum stadium seats probably heard more, more prayer going out, God, we're calling on you just to be slaughtered on a wholesale level. But do you think they gave up their faith? No. Why? Because He is. He is our substance and our evidence. He is our support. And our proof. He is. That's why I preach and teach like this. I'm running out of daylight, so i got to move on. This week, I want to take just a minute. Okay, that's not true. I want to take several minutes. I want to look at a sampling of prayers. I think there's three of them. Three prayers found in the Bible that emphasize exactly what I'm talking about this morning. Three prayers. First of all, know this. Prayer, when you pray, prayer is an expression of your faith. You wouldn't be praying if you didn't believe that He is. Amen? Prayer is an expression of faith. Prayer is faith set to words. No, I didn't get that out of a book. That's just my colorful imagination. Prayer is faith set to words. Let's start at these prayers. Let's start by taking a page out of Jesus' playbook. Amen? And look at Matthew chapter 6. We're back in 6. Our, this is where our text came from. We call it the Lord's Prayer. We're going to look at one fraction of all of those verses. One fraction. Chapter 6, verse 9, the first part of that verse. And this is all that it says. This, then, is how you should pray. Okay. So what does that mean? This, then, is how you should pray. Well, 
First of all, if Jesus is going to say something about just about anything, but in this case about prayer, and he says, when you do it, this is how it should be done, I think it probably behooves us to pay attention to that technique. If he's going to model something, all right, now watch everybody. This is how you do this. Pop, pop, pop. You might want to take notes. Because he, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, is saying, when you do this, this is how you do it. You might want to take notes on that. You might want to pay attention. Once he goes through this relatively brief list of what praying isn't and how not to do it, okay, once he does that, then he says, now that we've covered uh, what not to do, let's look and see how you are supposed to do it. Notice in what we call the Lord's Prayer, the first thing, the first rattle out of the box in this prayer, this, which in, in this, what I'm about to tell you, comprises the entire first half of the Lord's Prayer, is that we're supposed to acknowledge, we're supposed to worship, and we're supposed to submit to God Himself. When, God, when the Lord Jesus Christ says, when you pray, do this, Acknowledge, worship, and submit to God. First and foremost. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. Before any kind of requests are made. And, and there are requests made there, isn't there? The Lord's Prayer shows us that we can make requests. And Jesus is saying, this is how you do it. Before any of these requests, in this case, for provision, forgiveness, protection, and deliverance, before any of that is done, Jesus says that we need to exalt and we need to acknowledge God above everything and everybody. In other words, in other words, see if this is vaguely familiar to you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We must believe that He exists. And because we believe He exists, we first, before everything else, acknowledge His existence and our response to that existence. And we do that before we go about in, uh, uh, any of the Hebrews eleven six. He rewards those who earnestly seek Him clause. So the first thing we do is acknowledge Him. Then we put our requests out knowing two things. One, He exists. And two, He rewards those who who seek Him. That's how you pray. Case closed. Let's go home. Right? Okay, that's all I wanted to cover for that prayer. Because that gives us the framework. That gives us the baseline by which we function and how we operate. Amen? Okay. In fact, if you want to test that theory... Let's go to the single most biblical extreme example I can think of personally. There's a man on a cross next to Jesus. What's the th first thing he does? First thing he does when he turns his head over to Jesus, what's the first thing he does? He acknowledges and worships Him by calling Him what? Lord. That's bad circumstances right there. That's the, those are some bad circumstances. And what we can learn from that guy is amazing because did you notice he didn't say, Lord, can you please back these 
these nails out. I'm, they're really hurting me. And I'd kind of like to not be here now. That sounds so much like the church. I don't want to be in these circumstances. But what he says is, look, this is happening. I accept the fact that this is happening. Will you just remember me when you go to your kingdom? And there again, he acknowledges again who he is. So, there's that. Let's move on to another prayer since we're running out of daylight. This particular prayer didn't fulfill the formula that Jesus gave in Matthew 6. This one's found in Matthew chapter 14. And it is an amazing and infamous event that took place that shows the importance of believing before requesting. Okay? Now, everybody knows this one, too. Let's go to Matthew 14. We're going to start in verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. In modern vernacular, chill. Then he positively identifies himself. He says, it's I. It is I. It's me. Okay? Don't be afraid. And then I like what Peter does. Okay. You know the scripture, my sheep know my voice. You know those people who should be wearing a dunce cap 90% of their life. You know those kind of people. They're as intelligent as a fence post. You know those people. God loves them. He died for them. Stupid ain't a sin. Okay? It, it, it isn't. But they exist. Peter, at one point in his life, was said an aforementioned fence post. Why? Jesus just said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. What ghost would say that? None. But Peter replied, he said this, Lord, if it's you, I'm not putting it past you to be a lying ghost out there. Tell me to come to, the, uh, to you on the water. Okay, you're one of these fence post kind of folk who don't believe the word of the Lord that just came to you. It's me. Don't be afraid. And you say, if it's you, Lord, because I don't necessarily believe this, if it's really you, bid me come. Now, if I'm an evil spirit masquerading as God, I'm going to tell him to come out just to watch his butt drown. And dumb, quantified, is he gets out of the boat. Despite the fact that the spirit, he, he thinks is a ghost, that he doesn't believe, just said, come on out. I think the moral of this story is when the shepherd's voice is heard, believe that. Because you're going to know if it's not him. Yes? Okay. Come, he said. Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. 
And this is, this is the thing that we really need to pay attention to. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? That's the pivotal key thing that you need to pay attention to in this passage. Here Jesus said that Peter had little faith, meaning that he lacked confidence. Now, I've been in a thousand situations where I lacked confidence, but the Greek word for faith here is a compound word. It's made up of two separate words. One of which, one of the words that's used to make this word for faith, little faith, one of the words is the words that we already know about out of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 6. We covered those words already. And that's the kind of faith that has to be present in order to please God, right? We know that one. The difference here is that the word for faith in Matthew 14 is made up of another word as well. And between the two of those words, they specifically refer to having a lack of faith or confidence in Jesus Himself. It's very specific. So when Jesus said to Peter, why did you doubt? He was asking, why did you doubt me? I wonder how many times we could be asked that same question by the Lord Jesus when He's spoken something to our lives and we just... Would he say, why are you doubting me? Why don't you have faith in me? The trouble is that we know in this set of circumstances, we know that Peter would have been successful in this water-walking venture. We know it to be the case. How do we know that? One simple reason. Jesus said that he would be successful in walking on the water. When did he see that? Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to walk on the water. Jesus said what? I wouldn't do that if I was you. Jesus said, I think you need to pray and fast a little longer before you jump out here. No. Jesus made one word, a word that was all that needed to be said to ensure Peter's success in walking on water. And that was, yes. Come. Remember Matthew chapter 6. Remember this. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. He knows this. It may just be me. And that wouldn't surprise me if it was just me. But I think that it's safe to say That eating, drinking, and clothing, which are some of life's most bare and basic essentials, can be extended to not drowning. Agreed? So it would be, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? What shall we breathe? God already knows what you need. That did not go over nearly as well as I had hoped it to. I'm going to be honest with you. So when Jesus says to you, come, even when He says come in the most unusual, peculiar, and even precarious of circumstances, it's safe to say that in Him, if He said to you, come, Success is a given. 
I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. If Jesus speaks something to you and you bail into it, you just headlong into it, guys, as long as your eyes are on Him and what He's just told you to do, success is a given. It's only when we take our eyes from Him and look around, well, you know, this really shouldn't be working out. You know, this business venture, I really don't have what it takes here. And all of a sudden, you see that your, your sales drop. Your income tanks. It's because you're not looking. He said, do that. Then if you do that, doing that is success. Period. God didn't set about inventing and creating mankind and stood back and looked. You know, those three eyes, that one on the top left of his head, that just doesn't work. No, when he goes into a venture, it's success. A similar situation to this, what we just read in Matthew 14, occurs also in Mark 4. Look at Mark 4. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Despite that everyone here knows this story, let's go ahead and break it down anyway. Unlike Matthew chapter 6, our reference we just completed, um, this time Jesus is in the boat. He accompanies the disciples in the boat to cross to the other side of the lake. In fact, Jesus says as much. He said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Believe it or not, when Jesus, as is the case, every time Jesus opens his mouth, that, import, that statement right there, let's go over to the other side, that's really important for this reason. And I was just hitting on this just a second ago. If you make a decision to do something autonomously, if you just decide, you know what, today I think I'm going to go do X, Y, or Z. That's of your own free will. That's fine. But when you do that, you're on your own. It's anybody's game at that point. Uh, that's life. It's okay. But uh, if something goes wrong, that's just life, right? And everybody's had that kind of stuff happen. However, here again, if Jesus tells you to do something and you obey it, then that decision is one that transcends any and all earthly variables. The decision stands outside of any and all earthly influences. The Lord has a plan. If, that, if the Lord has a plan, and He invites you to be involved in it, and if you align yourself with that plan, 
then success is guaranteed. Why is that the case? Simple. It's because it's not your plan. Sometimes our plans work out great. Sometimes our plans work out, don't work out, 50-50, and that wasn't what I hoped. Sometimes our plans tank. That's just life. Right? But if it's His plan, that's a totally different animal. He says, if He says, (laughs) you can walk on water, ladies and gentlemen, guess what? You can walk on water. If he says you're going to the other side, then guess what? You're going to get to the other side. Winds and waves are utterly, completely irrelevant when it's his plan. Matter of fact, this isn't just wind and waves. I'm from the Great Lakes. I've seen wind and waves. But the Bible says this was a furious, meaning it was ticked off. Furious squall. Winds and waves are irrelevant to his plans. The fact that, to our eyes, our boat looks like it's going to sink. For him, guys, that's just a non-issue. It is not a problem for him. It is incidental. These things do not matter to God. In fact, what you like to know, how, would you like to know just how unimportant storms are to Him? Would you like to know how unimportant they are to Him? Listen to this. When this peculiar, particular storm hits, I want you to listen to this now. I want you to think about this, and I want you to use your imagination. Jesus is sleeping. In the storm. Okay? Everybody get this. He's in the rear end of the boat. He's in the stern. And he's asleep. Comfortably. On a cushion. In the rear end of the boat. In an open top vessel. Where, because this is a squall, a furious squall, water is pouring down on everybody On deck. It's pouring down. And it's pouring down on Jesus, who is asleep, comfortably, on a cushion in the back of the boat. Does everybody get the picture? Okay. Basically, what we've got here right now is a bunch of disciples running around, utterly freaked out, holding on for dear life doing whatever sailors do to keep their boat afloat while it fills with water and Jesus is asleep comfortably on a cushion in the back seat. Everybody get this? And he had absolutely, now think about this, he had absolutely no intention of getting up and doing anything about this storm. Nothing. He had no attention on doing it, except for the fact that the disciples decided, after they had utterly wigged out, we're going to die. 
even after the word of the Lord had come, remember when he said, it's, it's me, don't be afraid, it's me. He said, we are going to the other side. And they freak out, and he's sleeping comfortably on a cushion in the back seat and would have stayed that way if the disciples hadn't come back, disturbed him. He was probably going to nap through that entire storm and not wake up until they hit the shoreline on the other side. And if they hadn't woke him up, he would have woke up, yawned, stretched. He would have very likely scratched something. Noticed that his clothing was damp. And then with found someone to talk to and say, did it rain? But no. The storm is so unimportant to God in your life that He can do nothing about it knowing I have said we're going to the other side and you're going to get there despite what storm, as angry as it may be, is coming your way. We're getting to the other side. You don't have to worry about it. I'm getting you there. Why? Because I said so. That's how irrelevant the storms of life are to God. When He speaks, if, it's, if He has a plan and He invites you to participate in it, I don't care if there's a storm. He doesn't care that there's a storm. He's spoken. The storm is going to bow. The storm may flex its muscles, but the storm has nothing to do with His plan. No trial, no crisis, no storm, no nothing can come your way and have consequence enough to make Him wake up from His nap. Oh, that our faith was that steadfast. That in the middle of our storm, we just hunker down, let it rage, do the job that we have to do to keep the boat going in the right direction. But looking back at the back seat, and there he is. He's in the boat. He's with you. It's just that he's not involved with the, the mess. We get involved with the mess. And that's the mistake we met. Unfortunately, here again, in this example, the disciples' prayer was completely out of sync with what He said we should do. Jesus said that we should pray instead of keeping their cool and in faith, accepting Jesus' word that they were going to make it to the other side, that they had a destination, and that they were going to get there safely no matter what they encountered along the way, they did, in fact, completely freak out. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what's going on in your life, but when He, gave, when he saved you, when He put redemption's plan into effect and you acknowledged His redemptive power and you got yourself saved by accepting Jesus Christ, right then and there He said, Brother, sister... We're going to get to the other side. And no, no matter what you're experiencing, 
if it has to do with your marriage, your family, your health, your finances, or a myriad of other things. Look at me. It doesn't matter. Those things do not affect the divine plan of when you launch from the beach, you're going to get to the other side. Well, the disciples freaked out, and I'm coming to a close here very quickly. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? I like how the Scriptures portray Jesus right here. I love this. This is what the Bible says. He says, He got up, remember, sleeping comfortably on a cushion in the back seat. He gets up. He's just been accused. Don't you care? What's wrong with you? He gets up. He rebukes the the wind and said to the waves, Quiet. Be still. And the wind died down. It was completely calm. He said this to the disciples. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Notice, he rebuked the wind. And like a whipped pup, the wind tucked its tail, went to a corner, circled around and around, and quietly laid down. I realize that we don't typically see Jesus in this light, the way I'm about to present Him. Unless, of course, it has to do with something like the temple and money changers or His revelation. One of those... Fine. But typically we don't think of Jesus like this. But I'm sorry, I don't think that when Jesus was aroused from his sleep by the disciples, that when he woke up, he was very happy. I just don't think he was very happy. (laughs) Here he has the point of the spear of the soon coming church shaking him and hollering at him, waking him up from a rest that he desperately needed, saying, don't you even care that we're about to die. I think he came up out of that sleep rather unhappy. That they weren't even able enough to muster enough faith to believe it when he said that they were going to to the other side. After he rebuked the wind, I don't even know if Jesus, when he's standing there on the, at the side of the boat, rebuked the wind, told it to be quiet, I don't even know if at that point he turned around to the disciples. I don't know that he even turned around. If he just kept looking out on the sea, quiet, peaceful, and with his back to them, I can just hear him say, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Huh. That's when the Bible says that they utterly freaked out again. Who is this guy? That's what the Bible says. They didn't relax in their confidence during the storm. They didn't. They didn't even worship. They didn't even exalt his name before they made the request. They didn't do anything. They freaked out. They screamed an accusation at him. They screamed an accusation at Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. (laughs) Don't you care if we drown? Isn't that how we act sometimes? 
Here's our circumstances. There's something going on all over my life. Don't you even care that I'm about to go under and I'm not coming back up. And he's sitting on his throne and he's saying, didn't I save you? Didn't I save you? Well, then you're not going down until I say you're going down. You're not coming home to see me until I decide you're coming home to see me. And whatever the circumstances are wherein you do come to see me, I'll make it so that all of it, no matter how ugly and grotesque it is, all things work together for the good who are the called because I say so. Don't you care? Is it any wonder that I don't think Jesus was very happy when he came up off his bed, off the rear end of the boat? Matthew 17 says something that's really harsh. It is harsh. I'm going to be honest with you because I see myself in the mirror of God's Word. And when they accused him and woke him and accused him of not caring, I kind of imagine his, his thoughts were like those thoughts that he said in Matthew chapter 17 where it says, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? You still don't have any faith? How long? How, basically, Jesus is saying, how long is this going to take? Let's close down. Let's, let's finish this out. Jesus said to us, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Michael, come on. They're on the ocean. They see a ghost. They're not going to sit there and worship God before they identify the ghost. Come on, Michael. They're on the, they're on the sea. The boat is about to sink. They're not going to sit there and exalt God and have a, word, a prayer time before they say, Jesus, we need your help. Here's the key. If we'll just pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be our name, your name. We'll never get to the, oh my word, we're going to die part. We'll never get there. Because we're acknowledging the existence of God, that He is, that He exists. We'll never get there. Because by the time we're done exalting Him, our faith is renewed. And only when we've lifted Him up, only when we've glorified Him, only when we've exalted Him, do we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Save me from my storm. Forgive me of my debts as I forgive those who are my debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Faith is prayer, or prayer is faith put to words. So if we just follow Jesus' playbook, if we'll just do that, We'll be all right. Amen. Let's stand. Father, we worship you and give you praise and give you glory. We acknowledge your presence in this house. You are God and we are not.